Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm very happy to be joined by Christopher, and how do you pronounce your last name? Pramuk. Pramuk, who is the author of a fantastic book. Could not recommend it enough. It's called Sophia, The Hidden Christ of Thomas Merton. This is not his only book, but it's the only one that I've read. Um, just by way of introduction, Chris, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, first, I'd say uh, I'm delighted to be with you, Piers, and with your, uh, with your community today. Uh, I live in Denver. I teach at Regis University, uh, which is a Jesuit university here in Denver. Uh, I'm married. I have four kids, uh, two who are adopted. So we're a multiracial family, uh, two children from Haiti. Um, my wife is a pediatrician. Um, I'm a theologian. I teach uh, in religious studies, theology, spirituality. Did my doctoral work at Notre Dame, and, and that's where I first kind of came into serious Merton study. Uh, I taught for 10 years at Xavier University in Cincinnati uh, after my doctoral work. And then about four years ago, we moved back to Denver. My wife is from Colorado. And in fact, uh, Lori and I met here at, at Regis University when she was a student. And um, curiously enough, I was in discernment with the Jesuits. I was thinking about the priesthood. Um, and uh, at that time, and so um, when we met, that more or less answered my, my prayers uh, around the question of priesthood. Um, and I would go on to teach my first teaching job was in high school at, at uh, the Jesuit High School here in Denver, Regis Jesuit. Taught there for five years. I taught 15-year-old uh, boys, all boys at the time. Uh, taught them freshman theology. And I really fell in love with, you know, with being in the classroom. I never worked harder than those five years, uh, you know, being, being part of their lives, not just in the classroom, but um, it's really an all-consuming occupation, high school teaching. I was a, a cross-country coach as well. Um, so I taught for five years and just fell in love with it. And, and uh, after that, you know, my wife finished up her, her uh, pediatric residency. And at that time, uh, we decided it was time for me to go back to studies. And, and that led me to Notre Dame to do my doctoral work. So I've been in the Jesuit orbit, um, you know, for some 25 years now. And my current position at Regis is called uh, Chair of Ignatian Thought and Imagination. Inspired what a great, by, great job title. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? Uh, I, I have to admit, it is a great job title, uh, you know, named after St. Ignatius. Uh, but... When, when I first got the job, it was, 
it was chair of Ignatian thought and and I uh, I insisted on adding the phrase imagination. So, um, you know, it, it involves uh, working kind of with the mission of the university as a Jesuit university and trying to uh, invite people into that Ignatian tradition. So faculty, staff, administration, board of trustees. I'm part of a wonderful mission team of other folks, uh, including the vice president for mission, who's a dear friend, a Jesuit named Father Kevin Burke. And so I, it's really, the job is a kind of a hybrid of classroom teaching as well as mission work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting, uh, Piers, I, you know, I have this Ignatian part of my, my sensibilities, Ignatian spirituality, um, but also Thomas Merton sort of, uh, you know, has, has runs very deep in me from, from my earliest years as a teenager when I first started reading Merton. Oh, well. And perhaps maybe the common thread, I've often wondered about this, but, you know, Jesuits are associated with kind of action in the world and social justice, um, cross-cultural immersion, interfaith dialogue, kind of all the things that get them in trouble with the, with the hierarchical church. They, in other words, they tend to be at the margins, uh, pressing the, the frontiers of, of religious thought and spirituality but a very active mm-hmm. kind of uh, active spirituality. Whereas you think of Thomas Merton and the Trappists, um, you know, aura et labora, prayer and work, you know, solitude, uh, the monastic life, but, but both have this really powerful contemplative uh, wellspring, if you will, out of which they're, they're drawing. So, you know, Ignatius was often referred to as a contemplative, in action. Uh, so and, like, and the older Merton, I suppose you could say the same thing about him as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. He was very much in the world uh, pre, you know, in the 1930s, he was living in, in New York City, going to Columbia University, really attracted to kind of, um, you know, friendship house in New York City, working with the poor, thought about you know, that kind of a life of immersion, um, you know, but, but that, that other part of his, of his uh, desire, you know, caught hold of him when he went to visit the Abbey of Gethsemane, I think in 1940, uh, if not 41, when he finally entered and surprised all of his friends by announcing that he was entering the Trappist. Um, but yeah, he was thoroughly, you know, thoroughly immersed in the secular world. He loved visiting jazz clubs in New York City. Um, you know, he was a big, uh, you know, in, at Cambridge, sort of famously in his came, time at Cambridge before he came to Columbia, um, you know, lived a pretty dissolute life. And, you know, probably if, if not for coming to America, finding his niche among a group of friends at Columbia, literary folks like Bob Lax, uh, who was a dear friend to him, Robert Lax. Um, you know, if he hadn't found that community at Columbia, who knows what, uh, what kind of life Merton would have ended up living or, or choosing. When you read the Seven Story Mountain, it's quite clear to him, at least, that, um, that those early years were 
in a sense, very dangerous for him, that without the discipline of the monastic life, I think he came to realize without the vow of, of obedience and the discipline that involved, you know, that he was immersed in at Gethsemane, you know, he, I don't know what would have held him together. He could have easily sort of um, uh, led a very, led, led a very dissolute life. I'm not sure how else to put it. Um, but, but once he, once he landed at Gethsemane, he, he said, I feel like I've, you know, I've found this, this is the center of the, of the universe. It, this is what's holding the world together, you know, mm -hmm. time that was quite, uh, you know, quite globally was quite, uh, this is the dawn of the first, uh, the second world war, et cetera. So in a, in a world of real uh, kind of chaos and, and conflict, he found that life of prayer to be um, sort of the, the center around which he could, you know, find some meaning, I think, in his journey as a young man. Is it fair to say that he was possessed of a kind of, um, despite being a contemplative, even as a contemplative, he a, a kind of a restless intellect? Yeah, restless is putting it mildly, I think, uh, capacious, restless, uh, insatiable, uh, you know, so even, and even during his years at the monastery, um, you know, absolutely, he was a seeker, very much seeking and very sort of infinitely curious about other spiritual traditions. You know, some have cr criticized him for that, for, for uh, you know, s s sort of, um, a restlessness that seemed to have no bounds and, and such that, um, you know, one, one could, could ask where was his center? Um, to my mind, you know, his center in uh, his center was very much in Christ in the mystical life in the monastery and sort of paradoxically that it, it kept him quite anchored like a kind of a, a profound, magnetic force field, you know, in other words, he, it, it, it set him free from any fear, you know, of, of uh, wandering off, um, you know, into a kind of a, um, what, what used to be, we used to call syncretism or an indifferentism. Mm -hmm. That's the cr criticism that sometimes leveled at Merton that I think is a superficial criticism, mm -hmm. you know, that ultimately he, uh, became a Buddhist, or he wandered off in such a way that he lost his sort of Christ-haunted uh, sensibility. Personally, I think that's a misreading of, of Merton. But right. before, think about it, think about St. Augustine, you know, that same, some have described Merton as a contemporary or a modern-day Augustine. Uh, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. Mm -hmm. And Seven Story Mountain has been compared to the confessions. And like Augustine, this sense of sort of intellectual searching for many, many years, and then a kind of a homecoming, if you will, in, in his conversion to Christianity. And, to, and in Merton's case, his, um, you know, his conversion to Catholicism when he was at Columbia and then very soon after his decision to go to the monastery. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I sometimes feel like when, I, when Merton comes up in contemporary discussion, 
he's treated kind of like, um, he's Catholic, but he's not really Catholic. He's Catholic because he couldn't become Buddhist for cultural reasons from the time or something. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've always read him as profoundly Christian. Um, but that being said, what, what was it that made him so drawn to the East for a time? What was there something in there in particular that called him? Yeah. Well, um, that's a great question. And let's remember um, that he was also deeply drawn to the Christian East. And I, th I think that's important because in the Christian East, when you go back to the, to the patristic fathers and mothers in the early church, this, there was this profound, um, this profound you know, mysticism and the roots of monasticism in the Christian East. And, and so when Merton began to discover uh, the, the, the Buddhist writings, the writings of, of um, you know, of Buddhism, he found profound resonances with the fathers of the church and the monastic fathers and mothers, that early Christian literature, right? Um, pre, before the Christian East and West were divided in the, in, the 11, in the 11th century. So he was deeply drawn to, um, you know, when I say that the deep Christian monastic tradition. Remember his first years at Gethsemane, the abbot asked him to write all of these histories, you know, of these obscure monastic and Cistercian fathers and figures. He, he got very interested in John Cassian, you know, he got very interested in Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, so both Eastern and Western figures, um, and then of course, John of the Cross and figures um, that were sort of alive with this sense of Christ, uh, not just as a historical figure, but to be a Christian is to be drawn into um, what the East calls deification or divinization, the very, the very life energy of God, you know? So to, to um, I think what he found in, uh, so for example, D.T. Suzuki, who was a Japanese Zen teacher, um, you know, who Merton entered into a dialogue with starting in 1959, all the way until, you know, he met Suzuki in person in 1964. They met at Columbia. It's a wonderful story. There's a, there's a great photograph of the two of them. Um, you know, I think there's one point in one of his early letters to Suzuki, he says, He's talking about trying to explain what it means to be alive in Christ, to feel Christ walking alongside of us and with us. And he says to Suzuki, you know, um, something about Christ. Uh, we walk along with him and then he disappears because he is closer to that, closer to us than we are to ourselves. You know. <laughs> And he says to Suzuki, and this is like only their second letter, you know, Merton says, I know you will understand this more than many doctors of Israel, <laughs> by which he means Christian theologians, you know, that he found in Suzuki, uh, Suzuki's exposition on, on Buddhism and Zen in particular, a sort of a sensibility that to him, 
was very close to what he experienced in the desert fathers and mothers and in this deep Christian mystical tradition going back, you know, to the very beginning of the, of the roots of monasticism. So he would be looking at Buddhist ideas of emptiness in, in light of Meister Eckhart or the God beyond God or the, or even St. John of the Cross saying something like God's absence becomes a mode of presence and things like this. Is that? That's right. And would he have been a pioneer in those kinds of recognitions? I mean, were there scholars that were noticing this prior to Merton? Well, um, yes, yes and no. So I absolutely, in terms of sort of, um, you know, Catholic public intellectuals who were engaging at a very deep level with Buddhist practitioners in the 1950s, that was pretty rare. Yeah, I would think so. You know, um, in 1959, to, to write a letter to a Zen Buddhist teacher, a Japanese Zen teacher, you know, this is, this is well before Vatican II's Nostra Aetate, right? 1965, when the church sort of officially said it's, it's, it's not only okay, but it's a good thing to engage in dialogue with other religions. So in that sense, some of Merton's fellow monks would have been, may have been scandalized by if, if they knew that he was, you know, reading at a deep level, not only in Buddhism, but in Islam uh, and certainly in Judaism um, this, and, and in Hinduism, Sufi, Sufi mysticism, etc. So in that sense, Merton was very much a, a pioneer of interfaith study and dialogue. And I tell you, um, even today, when I read uh, his little book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, which chronicles his dialogue with Suzuki, um, I, I, I say to myself, I mean, this is as sophisticated as many of the comparative religion scholars who are writing today. He's really, it's, it's not at all a superficial uh, dialogue. So your point about, for example, the, the concept of emptiness, uh, his, his conversation with Suzuki around that term and bringing in concepts from Eckhart, Meister Eckhart, for example. Um, what's fascinating to me as well, here, here's where, so this notion, you know, very strong in Merton, what we would call the apophatic dimension of Christian theology. As soon as you say something positive or what's called cataphatic, right? Say something positive, you assert something positive about God. God is like such and such. In the next moment, you have to deny it as it were, but God is not like such and such. In other words, God is always beyond our conceptual categories. And I think that drew him deeply to Zen, this, this notion of, um, you know, Zen is very much an apophatic sensibility in the sense of um, the, the, the impulse to, as soon as you think you have it, to, to, to break it open and destroy it. The danger, it just highlights the danger of uh, thinking we can capture the mystery or the truth in a single formulation, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And so I think Merton was deeply drawn to that dimension of Zen as well, right? Understanding that Christian doctrine and dogma and Christian practices always, always risks uh, a kind of a triumphalism, an arrogance, a religious um, sort of a self-centeredness such that um, you are saved if you're in, you're, you're not saved if you're out, drawing a very strong boundaries around, right, the notion of salvation attached to particular beliefs. And, and, and Zen has this impulse of, of um, you know, of disavowing us of our hubris, if you will, of our religious hubris. And I think Merton as well, you know, me reading Merton at age 15, uh, he, he taught me very early, very early that I could be Catholic and still capaciously curious about other traditions and that there was always a danger as a Catholic of, of thinking that I have arrived, you know, at the, at the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's so stunning about your book is when we start moving towards apprehension, for lack of a better term, of Sophia, that will uh, that, that will complement this apophatic sense of his. And so could we just talk, because is, is, you make a point of this, but it's very striking how he had these experiences of the Sophianic, of the divine feminine, that looks so much like Soloviev or Bogakov. And could you just give us a picture of some of these experiences that start bringing him into that way of thinking? Sure. Sacramental or however you want to call it. Sure. Um, man, it's, uh, let me just say, first of all, that when I wrote that, the sixth chapter of this book. Is that, is that, uh, um, wisdom, our sister. Yeah, yeah. That's that is that that chapter is pleasure. That is why I studied theology to read stuff like that. That is an amazing chapter. Oh, thank you so much. I you just gave me chills, <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it was a it was a very difficult chapter to write uh, it, because I I wanted to be sure to place Merton in this larger fabric, this larger. 20th century context, and in particular, his reading of the Russian theologians who you just mentioned, Soloviev, Bogarkov, um, particularly Sergius Bogarkov, who was an exile from the Russian Revolution. He was exiled, um, made his way eventually toward Paris, and sort of founded a famous Russian school there of, of theology and students of his like Paul F. Dokomov also became very important for Merton. But it was a, it was a very difficult uh, to plunge into that world as a Western Catholic was a bit um, intimidating to say the least. But I felt it was very important to place Merton in this larger context. His, so to get to your question, these very um, Sophianic experiences, this experience of the feminine divine in the context, right, of, of an era that Merton called 
um, uh, a season of fury, an era of, of tremendous violence and displacement. You know, so Wisdom Sophia, this feminine figure uh, who appeared to Soloviev in a number of profound mystical visions, he would go on to write a lot about her. Um, and then Bulgakov himself would have as well sort of these these visions of Sophia Bulgakov, who initially was an atheist, very much uh, of, of an intellectual kind of an atheist, uh, but himself got, got very much enamored and drawn into this tradition. My point is, is that for the Russians, she wasn't, first of all, an intellectual or a theological concept or an idea. She was a figure of mystical experience. She was a divine figure, and um, they would later, later they would they would read those experiences as connected to the appearance of wisdom Sophia in the Bible, in this sort of uh, it you know this sort of hidden tradition wisdom tradition in the Old Testament in the Jewish scriptures. So the Book of Wisdom, and especially the Book of Proverbs, chapter eight verse 22 to 31, where she appears as a kind of a divine child who is dancing uh, with God at the dawn of creation, kind of a, a kind of a mediary figure between God and the creation, you know? Here we, we, we get into all kinds of sort of poetic language, right? Because, um, because, the foundational language for religious experience is not doctrine or theology, but, but poetry. It's, it's psalm, it's music, it's to try to express the inexpressible. So Merton is reading these uh, Russian theologians in the 1950s, and they're publishing out of Paris, and they're publishing in French, and Merton is reading them, if I'm not mistaken, in the original French. So he's reading Bulgakov, of Dokomov. And, and they're, they're kind of, um, they touch something deep in him that already is deeply in love with the wisdom tradition. So Proverbs 8 has always been, uh, there's something in the wisdom literature that speaks to Merton deeply, this feminine image of the divine. As he's reading them, she's beginning to show up in his dreams. Um, he's, he's, he's having dreams in which uh, a young Jewish girl comes to appear to him, for example. This is in 1958. Um, he, the famous epiphany that Merton has in Louisville at the corner of 4th and Walnut, which is described in the journal Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, uh, but it's, it's originally recorded in one of his private journals in March of 1958, he's standing on the street corner and, um, you know, he's watching all the people pass by and it's as if he can see this sort of inner beauty, secret purity, as he describes it, or like a diamond light shining from within. And he just, he says, it's as if uh, all of these strangers to me, I, I love them. I was aware that I I deeply loved them, and they could not be strangers to me. And he says, if only everybody could see each other as we really are, you know, that in all of us, there's this 
there's this light, what he calls la pointe vierge, this virginal point of nothingness, which is the image of God in us. And at that moment, it was as if he saw that light in these strangers, you know, and felt himself connected to them in a profound way. He would later describe that experience um, in a letter to Boris Pasternak as um, an epiphany, as it were, of proverb, of wisdom, Sophia. And so I think um, that, that was one of these Sophianic experiences that had a profound, it was a profound turning point for Merton. And many biographers, not just, not just me, but have, have noted, it was really from that point forward that he begins to write about social issues, uh, race, war, uh, the nuclear issue, et cetera, that something in that experience of the divine in people who were strangers to him kind of lit him up with a new sense of responsibility for the world and for the human race. And, and so not to simply or only continue writing beautiful spiritual writings, but as it were to step out a little more dangerously and to begin to write about some of the most contentious social issues of the time, you know? Yeah. Um, and she becomes... She, she, she incarnates his thought more deeply. Is this a fair way to speak? That, that now the apophatic, it's not gone, but now we are seeing that this is about a deep, deep engagement with the brokenness of the world and God's presence in that brokenness, in the very brokenness of it. Is that... I think you've said it very beautifully, yeah, very beautifully. Um, in fact, you know, he borrows from Evdokimov this image of what he calls the night face of Sophia, the night face of Sophia. That is to say, wherever the image of God in us is captive, is broken, is imprisoned, is addicted, is somehow held in prison. In the, in the poem Hagia Sophia, uh, which is his most profound expression of, of his experience of her. It's called Hagia Sophia. It was written in 1961. He describes her at one point as the child who is prisoner in all the people and who says nothing. So your, your, your expression of, of kind of the brokenness of the world in which God is intimately related, you know, is really right on the mark. Appears, uh, I think, she is both, as it were, the light in us, but also, um, what that that it's at the same time the tragic the tragedy of that light being obscured in us, you know, mm -hmm. um, anywhere that 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 people are um, diminished, that our that our divine humanity is diminished is violated, is desecrated, you know, is abused, is denied. Um, that for Merton would be an image of the Christ in us or the Sophia in us, the divine light that has, as it were, to borrow 
an image from Jesus, you know, the bushel basket has been, <laughs> has been placed over it. And so for Merton, what he calls the work of new being in grace, the work of new being in grace is to recover, to reclaim the divine light in us, if you will, and to defend the divine light in those who are marginalized, who are threatened, who are most vulnerable. The poem ends with an image of uh, a homeless God at, at, at night laying down under the stars without a name, without a number, without, without anything and entrusting himself to sleep, you know? So it's, it's an image of kind of the homeless God in a, in a Jesus-like figure. But I think very resonant in our time with the migrant, the refugee, children at the border torn from their parents, put into cages. This is the night face of, of Sophia, you know? Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, he identifies her with humanity, with the divine humanity of Christ, and by extension, right, that incarnational light that lives in all of us. As Christians, we claim it because we know Christ, but that extends well beyond Christianity, well beyond the human world, into the natural world, God's imminence in the creation itself, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's where we connect back to the Hebrew scriptures, her image at the dawning of creation, sort of at play, mm -hmm. dancing before God in the creation. So there are many other Sophianic passages, and I'll, I'll stop here, but just to go back to your earlier question, uh, Merton's nature writings are just uh, sort of saturated with wisdom imagery. Um, he sees her in the shy fawn who is, at, who is playing outside of his, his hermitage. Um, he, he hears her voice in the wind blowing through the trees, you know, outside the monastery. So whenever we are deeply attuned to the natural world, it's as if we're, we're catching uh, a, a, a glimpse, we're catching a tonality, a music in the world that he would identify with wisdom, Sophia. And so she's, um, she is both, her energies, if you will, are, well, she is both uncreated and participating in the creation. She's, she's, Mediatrix, I guess, in a Marian sense. She's, yeah. Yeah. And the kenosis, now, or the theosis, I should say, he was very orthodox in that it would eventually, that, that everything will be aflame. That the theosis extends to all of creation. That's right. That's right. In, in fact, I mean, I think to understand, and this took me a while but I had to understand the Russians to understand Merton on this point. <laughs> really? Because we're getting into a very much of a kind of a metaphysical understanding of, of the Godhead, if you will, uh, the eternal Godhead, you know, as it were before the creation. So Bulgakov described her. And again, we're speaking kind of in poetic metaphorical terms here, right? Because nobody has ever seen the Godhead. 
prior mm-hmm. to the creation. Um, he described her as the world in God before the creation. And that, that God's essence, God's being, is love. She is uh, not, a, as it were, a separate person in God, but God's very usia, or God's very substance, which is love. And love is diffusive of itself. It wants to share itself, right? Mm. So he used the word kenosis, this outpouring of divine love from before the beginning um, that wants to express itself incarnationally so that love has an object to Mm. receive, you know? Mm-hmm. So you have this kind of image of the outpouring of God and thus the creation. To use a feminine image, and this comes also from Jewish, the Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalah and so forth. This idea of, there's a, a phrase in the Jewish mystical tradition of zimzum. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. But God, as it were, opens a space in God's self, in herself, for the creation. There's that term of emptiness, paradoxically yielding a fullness. Mm -hmm. It's a very maternal image, as if if the world is part of the very womb of God. So the world is in God, right? That's what we might call a panentheism. Yeah. The world in God. Uh, and, and so we reach for a kind of maternal imagery that God must create a, a space or God chooses to create a space in God's self for the emergence of the material universe, if you will, the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And why? Because, again, it's like Merton at Fourth and Walnut. It's just it, to the degree we realize ourselves as being swept up in the sort of lovingness the love of God, then if, if for me, then for all creation, you know, there's, so the experience of the mystic of sort of this unitive impulse of being interconnected with all of creation. And again, it's not so much an idea or concept as a realization that that's born out of, you know, of, of experience of these moments of sort of, when the boundaries, as it were, you know, begin to become fluid. And I may be with another person, my lover, my wife, my child. I may be, you know, with a dear, a beloved friend who's really gone through a hard time. I may be out in the natural world, you know, uh, on my bike in the morning before the kids are awake. Every morning I'm out on my, on my bike, you know, or um, we've all had these moments and as it were foretastes um, of the eternal life of God, or maybe tastes of, 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 the un- of the unity we experienced in God from the creation, you know. So what, what, what Merton is finding in the wisdom tradition, both in the Bible and in the Russian tradition, is a kind of a, it's what Rowan Williams calls an extended metaphor or a, a poetical language for describing something that we all experience in these, in these liminal moments, if you will, these liminal spaces, um, but that cannot be captured, as it were, by intellectual language 
to, to give her a name and give her a face, as it were, is a way of fooling out, filling out our picture of the divine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so that it's not purely dominated by masculine or patriarchal imagery. The dominant picture of God in the Bible. What we have in the wisdom tradition is a kind of a counter testimony to a different way of experiencing the divine. And it, and it, and it, celebrates the, the fullness of the divine, the freedom of God to be expressed outside of traditional patriarchal categories, the fullness and the freedom of God to be manifest in not just in men or in male forms of religion, patriarchal forms, uh, but who has found voice in, in feminine manifestations of, of religious practice as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like when you, in your chapter six, it starts getting, um, I mean, it's just, it's just, a, an amazing section, but when you start talking about the cross as access Monday, I mean, to me that the book is like, that's the peak of the book in this section. Mm. And you talk about um, that, well, I'll just read something, um, (laughs) if I can get through it. Um, For those whose lives are held without mercy, down to street level, by systemic injustice and poverty, The Pascal mystery potentially breaks through searing hopelessness with a word of divine solidarity. I am with you here now and promise life, not death, is my plan for you. What what about those whose ears are closed to the cry of the poor, whose power turns on their subjugation? The cross confronts these, first of all, as a word of judgment and warning. You killed him. Under the shadow of the cross, Merton says, whether by what we have done or what we have failed to do, we find ourselves eviscerated by our own ingratitude. Yet even here, even here, the cross is potentially the tree of life, the center of the new creation. Because it is here that the false self, the self that is captured by others, can finally be renounced. (laughs) <laughs> might be asking you too much to riff off of that i'm sure that was that paragraph was a true labor of love uh, i i i i'm really touched to hear you read it back to me and uh, i'm touched that it moved you um i i do remember uh i do remember writing that section um in a, in a in a deep state of of prayer, like Lord, help me, help me, <laughs> help me to say what I want to say here, what needs to be said. Well, um, a, as you know, the theology of the cross, you know, has a long tradition of 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 of, of actually possibly doing more damage than. Than, than good, than being a word of liberation. It, it can also be 
you know, how we interpret the death of Jesus really matters. Um, I, I tried to say there, to try to read the word of the cross, if you will, as a word of solidarity, you know, of God's own kenosis of in Jesus, um, God's own self-emptying, as St. Paul describes it, you know, in Philippians. Um, but, but, but how to, you know, how to express that in, in, in a way that touches people at, at, at street level, right? In, in a way that can be liberating. Because after all, we're talking about, a, you know, the crucifixion, historically speaking, is a profound act of evil, of, of desecration, of, of murder. Um, and, 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 and so, to read that salvifically, it seems to me, is, is an extension of, of, the, of the Hebrew and the Jewish belief that God walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death. It's a theology of accompaniment, of solidarity, of God's own solidarity, that even at our most, most broken, at our most sinful, you know, Jesus from the cross, uh, forgiving those who crucified him, that, that God's mercy enfolds us, even there, especially there. Um, I think for those who have, who have tasted that, you know, that that can that can be profoundly liberating and 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 make sense but to get to that place where you actually believe it and you're not paralyzed in shame in guilt for the things you have done for the, for the people you have hurt uh whatever it might be that holds you in shame you know um the great howard thurman uh, African-American mystic uh, theologian advisor to Dr. King and many in the kind of the pre-civil rights movement. He has a, he has a wonderful kind of meditation on, you know, um, Jesus and the woman who is, you know, weeping at his feet and w washing his feet with her tears. And he, he, he uses that image as a, as a figure really for all of us in our lowest, at our lowest. And he says, Jesus, you know, lifts her up and affirms her. And he says he, as it were, he places a crown over her head that for the rest of her life, she is trying to grow into, you know, <laughs> that his, his forgiveness, his mercy, his, his seeing her, just seeing her and loving her while everybody else around was scandalized, you know? How, how could he let her touch him like that? Everybody else was scandalized. Jesus looked at her and loved her and lifted her up and, and places, as it were, a crown over her head of her, of her own divine humanity, we might say, you know? Um, and that, that gift of his attention you know, and that being what what we are meant to do for each other. You know, Simone Weil says something like that. That is ultimately the greatest, the purest gift of love we can give to one another is the attention. 
And, you know, I think many people that are listening to this in the recovery world, you know, many of us, you hear it still sometimes in recovery, but my sponsor told me that God loved him the most when he deserved it the least. And so, you know, he should at least be there for somebody else. Um, so, well, where, where do you stand with Merton today? Are you, I understand, are you still assistant director of the International Merton Society? Is yeah, that the title you had. Yeah, you know, I um, so I'm currently the vice president of the International Thomas Merton Society. It's it's an amazing fellowship of people from really all around the world. Our greatest numbers are here in the states, but we have chapters, Merton Society chapters, you know, all over uh, in Latin America, in Europe, in England, in Ireland. Um, uh, it's, it's really a wonderful fellowship. We get together every two years for a general meeting in person. Of course, we didn't do that, uh, or we will not do that this summer. This would have been uh, our, our year to meet. This summer, we're going to meet virtually this summer. But uh, typically, we have two to three to 400 people show up at these biannual meetings. Um, you know, one of the blessings perhaps of meeting virtually is will it be able to gather more than that together for our virtual meeting? I'm currently the vice president. I'll transition to being the president for two years uh, starting in, in, in June. So it's a two-year term and the VP takes over as, uh, as president. But really it's a, it's, it's, um, it's a very, very much... Uh, collaborative, the executive sort of team, the president, vice president, and the past president, we all work very closely together. Uh, we have um, international advisors and a board of advisors who are elected. So it's, it's very much, um, you know, a, a team, a team sort of effort. I guess, I guess if, if there's any meaning in, um, being president, it, it has to do with trying to set a tone or a tenor or certain priorities for our next couple of years. Mm -hmm. What do we want to see the, you know, what kind of initiatives do we want to take? How can we, especially, um, uh, one of our concerns is sort of uh, developing a new generation of Merton readers in, in the young people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll get a few out of this. <laughs> um, and just before we, we close, do you have any uh, other, what's your research today? What are you looking at now? Well, let me, let me just say that if you're interested in the Merton Society, you can find our website at merton.org. Very simple, merton.org. And also there you find um, a wonderful treasure trove of resources. Anything you, you wanna know about Merton, it's a kind of portal to the Merton archives, which wow. are housed, housed at Bellarmine University at the Merton Center. Um, and is so that, that is that a university in Kentucky? It, it is. It's in it's in Louisville. Hmm. So not not too far from the monastery from Bardstown. It's in the western part of the state. Bellarmine University 
houses the Merton Archives. So that website will take you to the archives as well as the International Thomas Merton Society. Uh, the ITMS also has a Facebook page that has like 6,000 members. Oh, wonderful. And you're very welcome to join. It's a wonderful place for community where people post their thoughts on Merton. Um, and it's a good source for news about Merton events as well. Uh, you know, um, I just published a book last year. One of the other areas that I teach in is uh, the realm of music and the arts. Mm -hmm. so I just published a book um, called The Artist Alive, Explorations in Music, Art, and Theology. And it's based on a course that I teach uh, in music, art, and theology, where I, where I bring music and the arts as a kind of a doorway into theological and spiritual questions. So, for example, mo most of the music in the book that I explore is actually secular music, uh, so-called, uh, but has profound, you know, hints of transcendence. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Really? Uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Wonder, Indigo Girls. Um, so I use music and the arts in this class and in the book as a kind of a vehicle for, uh, you know, going into spiritual and theological questions. Um, that, that's my that's, latest. That's why you want an imagination attached to your job description. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I, I, I really believe that, um, you know, the, the, the role of the arts in kind of um, in kind of opening our imaginations in, and in cultivating empathy, you know, helping us get inside the experience of others. It's not accidental, by the way, that Merton, you know, um, Hagia Sophia, he didn't write a doctoral dissertation on wisdom. I did. Uh, I wrote 300 pages. Merton wrote a poem. And I think you can say more in the poem, in a certain sense, for the reader who is receptive and open to a work of poetry like that. You can be more moved by 12 lines or 26 lines of poetry than by a doctoral dissertation that it, it, it gets us out of our head and down into those, those spaces uh, of deep experience and deep desire, deep yearning for God, deep yearning for one another, deep yearning for healing. So for me, you know, I, I grew up playing the piano from a very young age. Music was my first vehicle for prayer, I'm sure of it. Sitting at the piano as a kid, really was my doorway into the world of, of contemplation. Mm. As I've gotten older, I've recognized that more and more. And so I've brought music and poetry more and more into my teaching. And, and this book was a result of that. Wonderful. I hear you've done a lot of work with uh, African-American spirituals. I, I have. I have. Um, I have. I, I teach them. Um, some of my best moments in class are when I teach them to my students. Um, and again, because there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a history rising out of those spirituals. There's a spirituality, a profound uh, sense of yearning for freedom and for justice. And, um, you know, when I was taught those spirituals, uh, 
by a woman named Issei Barnwell, who is a member of Sweet Honey in the Rock. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah, I had the great, <laughs> great fortune of taking a course with her uh, when I was like 26 year old, 26 at uh, the Naropa University in Boulder. Oh, yeah, sure. And that was my introduction to the spirituals, and it, it, it really profoundly changed me to be introduced to that tradition. And so um, anytime I have a chance to uh, sort of speak out of that history uh, and out of that spirituality, um, I find it, it, like I was saying earlier, more than, you know, discourses on, on racial justice, et cetera, all very important, but somehow the music of that tradition reaches down and grabs us in ways that, you know, rational, uh, discursive language does not. Yeah, it's almost like it consummates it or something, fulfills it, yeah. yeah. Well, shall we finish with the first part of Hagia Sophia? I would love it, let's do that. Would you like, like me to begin? Please. So just, just to say the poem is structured in four, four parts according to the, the liturgical hours. And so it begins at dawn, the hour of louds. There is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dim delight, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness, this mysterious unity and integrity is wisdom, the mother of all, natura naturans. There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fount of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all created being, welcoming me tenderly saluting me with indescribable humility. This is at once my own being, my own nature, and the gift of my creator's thought and art within me, speaking as Hagia Sophia, speaking as my sister, wisdom. I am awakened. I am born again at the voice of this, my sister, sent to me from the depths of divine fecundity. Let us suppose I am a man lying asleep in a hospital. I am indeed this man lying asleep. It is July the 2nd, the feast of Our Lady's visitation, a feast of wisdom. At 5.30 in the morning, I am dreaming in a very quiet room when a soft voice awakens me from my dream. I am like all mankind awakening from all the dreams that were ever dreamed in all the nights of the world. It is like the one Christ awakening in all the separate selves that ever were separate and isolated and alone in all the lands of the earth. It is like all minds coming back together into awareness from all distractions, cross purposes and confusions into unity of love. It is like the first morning of the world when Adam, 
that the sweet voice of wisdom awoke from non-entity and knew her. And like the last morning of the world, when all the fragments of Adam will return from death at the voice of Hagia Sophia, and will know where they stand. Such is the awakening of one man, one morning, at the voice of a nurse in the hospital. Awakening out of languor and darkness, out of helplessness, out of sleep, newly confronting reality and finding it to be gentleness. It is like being awakened by Eve. It is like being awakened by the Blessed Virgin. It is like coming forth from primordial nothingness and standing in clarity in paradise. In the cool hand of the nurse, there is the touch of all life, the touch of spirit. Thus wisdom cries out to all who will hear, will, to all who will hear, sapientia clamitat in plateus. And she cries out particularly to the little, to the ignorant and the helpless. Who is more little? Who is more poor than the helpless man who lies asleep in his bed without awareness and without defense? Who is more trusting than he who must entrust himself each night to sleep? What is the reward of his trust? Gentleness comes to him when he is most helpless and awakens him, refreshed, beginning to be made whole. Love takes him by the hand and opens to him the doors of another life, another day. But he who has defended himself, fought for himself in sickness, planned for himself, guarded himself, loved himself alone, and watched over his own life all night, is killed at last by exhaustion. For him there is no newness. Everything is stale and old. When the helpless one awakens strong at the voice of mercy, it is as if life his sister, as if the Blessed Virgin, his own flesh, his own sister, as if nature made wise by God's art and incarnation were to stand over him and invite him with unutterable sweetness to be awake and to live. This is what it means to recognize Hagia Sophia. Well, on behalf of our audience, I really, really want to thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> Thomas Merton, what a resource, what a resource for us all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Piers. It's been a pleasure to be with you. You know, my, my mom introduced me to Merton at, at, at 15 and never would I have imagined uh, he would be a, a companion, you know, for, for, the, for much of my life, um, for the rest of my life. And so I feel that he's, he's with us and uh, walking, walking with us, one of us, not, not perfect. And because he's not perfect, um, you know, he's not on a pedestal. He, he shows us through his own journey, you know, something of the good news 
that, that God is with us and walks with us, you know. So I'm, I'm delighted to be drawn into the circle of your community. And, um, and I wish you all, you and all of, all of your community, the very, very best. Thank you. And I am very glad that your mother turned you on to Thomas Merton. <laughs> Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.